0: Okay, we're going to be in 3rd John this morning, the last of the Letters of John. This will wrap up our series on 3rd John, on on the Letters of John, uh, and then next week we'll begin our Advent series, so I'm looking forward to that. I feel like I've uh, learned a lot in this series, so that's good. hope you have too. When I was a teenager, uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, our church would send us off to a week-long Bible camp every summer. and Most of the time, this was held at a place called Palacios Baptist Encampment down on Matagorda Bay. Uh, But sometimes, a couple times at least, we went to Gloria, New Mexico, which is where uh, our our kids go for uh, singing camp when they go. Uh, But regardless of where we ended up, we would have like a morning worship time with singing and a sermon, and then they'd have these small group Bible studies, and we were broken up into these groups by grade, uh, and at Galatius, then, we were also broken up into boys and girls, so there was separate groups for boys and girls. Uh, at Glorieta, they had mixed groups. I don't know what the difference is, but that's how they did it. Um, our youth pastors, the ones that I had growing up, uh, they had always drilled it into us, to take notes on on the messages that we heard. And so I always took notes on the sermons by hand. I I still have a lot of those, actually, in various notebooks uh, that I keep in a box at the end of the bed. Every now and then I'll go back through them, and it's kind of interesting to see. as much uh, teaching as they gave us during the week, the thing I actually enjoyed the most was meeting people from other places. It didn't really matter to me if they were boys or girls. I would get their names and addresses and would spend the next year writing to them. Uh, And and at least until the next camp happened, we were able to sort of come back together and see each other. Uh, It was sort of a different world back then. I'm sure most of y'all remember that, except for maybe the the kids here. Uh, I still have some of the letters I received from some of those people, though I've lost touch with all but one of them, who's a Facebook friend, uh, we would write about all kinds of things. You know, what, what classes we were taking and why they were terrible and how mean that the, all, all the horrible teachers were and all that kind of stuff. Uh, back then, not now. I don't think that now. Um, we would write about our families and friends and church stuff and sports and activities and all the things. And uh, We would write about tough times and celebrations and different things we were going through. And in a strange way, I felt as close to them as I did the friends from my own town that I was around all the time. Uh, Sometimes, even closer, there was just something about the whole idea of sitting down and writing a letter to someone and then receiving a letter back that seemed personal, right? And it's been a good long while since I've written any sort of letter to anyone. I probably should. Uh, The closest thing I've seen in the past 20 years are birthday and Christmas cards where someone will write a little something inside as they give it to you. I always enjoy those, actually. Um, And now I recognize that, you know, talking in person will almost invariably be more personal than a letter, but not always. Sometimes you can say in a letter something you can't in person, and vice versa, right? But there's one thing I can say about letters. They remain long after the fact. I have trouble remembering things on my to-do list, much less a conversation that I had 35 years ago, right? But if I open up one of those letters, I'm reminded of what I was going through at the time by how the person responded to me, and uh, by what they wrote, and I, I have it all there in front of me. And in today's world, a lot of communication takes place by text or on some form of social media, and it's really difficult, if not nearly impossible, to go back and look through any of that. Uh, Some of it vanishes, like after you post it, it just disappears. Uh, Some of it's difficult to find or filter through. Uh, On Facebook, for example, if it doesn't pop up in your memories, good luck finding it. No, it's just not gonna happen. Uh, All that to say, we have lost a little something, I think. There's a whole world today that today's world will never really know, right? A world somewhat more permanent, somehow even more interactive than all our interactive technology. John's letters seem to be a part of that other world. But I think that even as old as they might be, they're still around for a reason. They still have something for us. Something to show us about who God is and who we are and what our lives can be like. And in this third letter, he got much more personal than he had in the previous two. And so follow along with me, if you will. We're going to read the whole thing. Uh, it's just 15 verses. We'll begin in verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to, and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you, greet the friends each by name. May God bless the reading of his word. So John began addressing the letter to a person named Gaius. Gaius was a fairly common name, sort of like uh, Bill is today, something along those lines. Uh, So even though there are other mentions of men by that name in the book of Acts, it's unlikely that this is the same Gaius as any of them. This is probably a different guy. Uh, What's more important, though, than who Gaius was... Uh, uh, is that he had a relationship with John, and that relationship is more important. Uh, John used the word beloved to describe him, and and the Greek word he used is agapetos, uh, from agape, which means beloved, but it carries with it the connotation of being beloved by God, which makes sense coming from John, right? That's sort of right in his wheelhouse. Uh, John was serious about God's agape love, being poured into each believer and then through each believer into the lives of those around them. Have you ever been called beloved by God? Has anyone ever thought of you in those terms or said that to you? Have you ever thought of yourself in those terms? Now this may seem like something we could just breeze right past, but this is a weighty greeting John wanted to set the tone right away that this was a different kind of letter, a relational letter, a warm, affectionate letter. Not that his others were harsh or cold, but this is personal. This is different. A letter, he writes, that is conveying deep fondness between John and Guys. And that matters because John wanted Guys to see things in that light, to approach whatever he was about to say with that understanding. To understand that not only was he loved by John, but more importantly, he was loved by God. And as you know, I recently turned 50, and my mother gave me a birthday card with a short, handwritten note. It comes across in a very similar way as what John said to guys here at the beginning. So I asked her if I could uh, read it to y'all and share it with y'all, and she said yes. So I want to just read just quickly what she said. The card's kind of your normal buy-at-the-Hallmark-store card. It's got all the sort of things that they say. I'm not going to read any of that. But then she wrote a handwritten thing, like right there at the bottom. So this is what it says. And it's a cursive, I can still read it. So I'm pretty proud of myself. It says, I am so grateful and thankful for who you are and what you stand for. So much love and God's blessing for you and family on this, your 50th birthday. Love you much, Mom. It's simple and yet it's profound, right? Just like what John has written throughout his letters. And I think that's important that we understand uh, not just that my mom thinks I'm awesome, but that uh, John was speaking to Gaius in similar terms. He was talking to him that way. Now, I'm sure everyone else here has received a card like this at some point from somebody. Hopefully you have. Um, Probably more than one, right? And this is just about the only place we find sort of handwritten sentiments along those lines anymore. But what we know when we read them is that we're loved, right? That's what John wanted to convey to Gaius right at the beginning. And then he talked about praying for the health and soul of Gaius, which might seem an odd way to phrase such a concern. Uh, But John was basically drawing a parallel hoping that Gaius Physical and spiritual life were in harmony, right? That what he was feeling uh, physically was as well as what he was feeling spiritually. Is, as his soul was in the process of being saved and made whole, that he was feeling that in his physical life as well. John went on to mention that he rejoiced when he heard of Gaius walking in the truth. In other words, John was excited that Gaius was experiencing eternal life and then demonstrating it in his daily interactions with others. According to John, when those he considered his children, such as Gaius, walked in the light and in truth, it was the greatest source of joy. You think about it, like when we see our children do amazing things, that's, that's the same feeling, right? It works that way. But what's also clear in this simple opening is that there was some manner of network between various churches in that area. That these churches shared resources of some sort and that there were teachers and messengers moving freely among them. That two or more believers, he calls them strangers, and we don't know how many, but two or more, showed up where John was with a good report concerning Gaius is evidence of what we're talking about here, that they were all connected. And that brings up some questions. Like, what other churches are we connected with? How are we connected with them? What does that look like? And I know, for example, that over the past few years, when we have put together uh, like a VBS, we've been able to get some of our main materials from the Presbyter- Presbyterian Church in Fort Stockton through Janet's connection with them. We've been very grateful for that. I also know that we were at one time on the receiving end of a generous donation from Stonegate Church in Midland that includes our computers and the projector and the screen and all that stuff that we have, uh, which is fantastic. Um, I know that we uh, have the blessing of connecting with a church up in the Panhandle. that came down a couple of years in a row to help us do VBS, brought their youth group, their youth pastor, and his wife came down with the group and helped us. Uh, and just a few years back, we of course joined together with Collision Church, John and Emily, and, and their group from Alpine to go down to Rockport and assist in hurricane cleanup. And that was us bonding with and working with another church. And we've we've done things locally as well. We've collected seed packets for the Big Bend Border Ministry and other things like that. And I could keep going, but I think you get the point. In all of this, whether we were on the receiving end or the giving end, we needed external connections with other groups of believers. And I think the New Testament makes it clear that we are supposed to have such connections. Not to mention that each of these connections have been vital to our efforts in ministry, both here and elsewhere. And I'm always on the lookout for ways we can connect with other churches into ministry. In fact, uh, I'm meeting with a pastor from a church in Austin when I go to pick up Bailey in December to see how we might partner with them. And my hope is that we can uh, bring them out and host them out here at some point to minister in this community, and then maybe we might be able to go and assist them do something in their area as well. That's that's what I would hope to do. Because that's what we see all through the New Testament. And, And here in John's letter to Gaius, It's no different. He talked about these folks arriving with a good report, having come along this journey. And then John went on to talk about Gaius' faithfulness in the process of receiving them and then sending these travelers along. Believers, as they were, who were obviously strangers to him, but they weren't strangers in general. John clearly knew that. In fact, it seems from what he wrote in verses 5-8 through that They had come from some other church where John was by way of Gaius and then would be returning there as well. And John seems to have expected nothing less than another round of hospitality from Gaius. And in essence, the heart of this letter is about that hospitality. In our day and time, hospitality is generally shocked out to various hotel and motel chains. Uh, And if you want to know the difference between a hotel and motel, you are asking the wrong person. (laughs) Uh, there were inns in the ancient world, they called them a different name, but they they had the same function. Uh, There were fewer further between and tended to have a lot less space. They didn't have 10-story, you know, huge hotels in downtown Jerusalem or anything like that. Uh, They may have not even had anything better than a stable on the side of the building, but that would do in the right situation. In ancient Israel, however, further back, uh, hospitality was a major, major thing. If someone came to your town passing through, uh, they had to stay in the night, they would typically end up somewhere near the main gate where sort of the older and the wiser men and all that gathered. And if they needed a place to stay, it was an obligation for someone to offer them a place to stay. And we find a glimpse of this in Leviticus nineteen thirty through 34, Where it says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Right? As they unpack this in their culture, it meant giving people a place to eat and sleep, a place. Off the street, so that they weren't robbed or killed or anything like that. A place where they would be safe and sheltered, much as God had sheltered and fed the children of Israel during the Exodus story. And this was still the case in the New Testament, and we see it in Jesus and the other disciples actually staying with Peter and his family in Capernaum, and there are various other instances. John was still in this same mindset, only now he applied it to the young church and the people who were passing between the various congregations. When he mentioned that they had accepted nothing from the Gentiles, he he wasn't making some sort of racial remark there. Even though the church was still mostly Jewish at this point, there had been Gentile converts. On the contrary, John was using the term to re- refer to non-believers. That's really what he was talking about. And he was simply saying the travelers had not stayed with any non-believers because they hadn't needed to. They were on a mission from God, and so far, other believers, including Gaius, had taken care of them. Now, John was excited by this. It's clear that he saw it as not only the right thing to do, but as a necessity in terms of how the churches would interact with and depend on each other. He wanted them to be personally connected and to feel that connection. And this is clear in the way John spoke of being fellow workers with them by making sure they were well cared for on their journey. Just over two years ago, before COVID descended on us, a couple from the Netherlands on a cycling tour from San Diego to Orlando rode their bicycles into town. And I hope I get their names right. They told me and I've forgotten. Their names were, I think, Ivo and Andre. Uh, The high that day had been 63, but the low that night was going to be 34. And all the local hospitality that we have here was apparently full. And so someone pointed them in our direction, and we were able to put them up in our fellowship hall. Now, granted, it doesn't have, like, a cozy fireplace or anything (laughs) like that. Not this big, nice beds like the Gage uh, but it has, we have military cots that have been donated to us that we've used for this reason. Uh, it has bathrooms, they have a roof over their heads, and there was a nice heated room waiting for them when we got back from taking them to supper. They were safe and sheltered. When the group from the panhandle came down, we were able to put them up during their stay as well, with several of y'all offering your hospitality to them and letting them stay with you. This is at the heart of what John was excited about, a sense of personal connectedness that comes from relational interaction, from caring for people, even if you don't know them very well, from looking after each other for the sake of the gospel. The question is, what does this look like for us moving forward? How how might we interact with other groups of believers in ways that will benefit the kingdom both here and elsewhere? What kinds of relationships do we want to be involved in? Because just like the early church, we need to be connected to what God is doing. And while our main focus and effort needs to be here in Marathon, it can't just be here in Marathon. We can't afford to be that myopic with the gospel. If the first believers had been closed off to anything beyond themselves, we wouldn't be sitting here, right? There are people who need whatever we can offer them, especially our prayers. But we have to know them and to know what is going on with them if we're going to lift them up in prayer. That's where this begins. Then we look for opportunities to care for them just as John told Gaius. That's the faithful thing John was referring to in verse 5, and then circled back around to in verse 8. And this brings us to the opposition. Apparently there was a man named Diotrephes who was standing in the way of what John was trying to do. Based on what we read here, Diotrephes was prideful and arrogant, putting his own concerns over John's, even though John was the apostle. And he didn't seem to care for John or John's teaching. In fact, he actively opposed him. And we get a couple of details in verses 9 through 10, including talking wicked nonsense, refusing to receive the believers that John sent, and actually keeping them out of the gathering of believers. And There's one word in this description that really stands out and gives us a clear insight into the rest of it. John used the word fluareo, which means to gossip or talk nonsense. And John said wicked nonsense, right? It, the primary use of this word, though, was of someone who was overflowing with fluent but empty speech. This is how John described diatrophies. He was fluent, well-spoken, a man whose ability allowed him to move into a leadership role in the community of believers where he lived, but the trouble was that he was all fluff and no substance. He was what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 13.1 as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, loud but fruitless. He had still gained some measure of authority somehow within the group and was able to exercise it against John and ultimately against God. In other words, this guy was a problem. Not like the Gnostics, though, because John had made it clear about not greeting or welcoming them. They weren't supposed to even be involved. He didn't really say anything like that about Diotrephes. Instead, he he said he would confront the situation the next time he visited. John wasn't going to sit by and ignore something that needed to be confronted, even if it meant having an uncomfortable conversation with someone. John knew that the gospel and kingdom of Jesus were far too important. He also knew that the people around Diotrephes were in danger of being led into error by his actions. But it doesn't seem like John wanted to remove Diotrephes only to confront him, to bring up what had been going on in an effort to correct the problem. It sort of seems like John still had some hope for Diotrephes, that he might be persuaded and won over to the way of light love, and life. As we have made our way through the letters of John, we have come across this idea of having difficult conversations for the sake of the kingdom unity multiple times, right? We've heard it over and over. It seems a part of what John was trying to do was encourage the kind of spiritual growth and maturity where this is a normal aspect in the life of a believer, even if they find it challenging. So is that where we are at? Have we grown and matured to a point where we can talk through stuff with people and get along for the sake of the gospel? All too often in churches, including this one, I've seen people who would rather just stay home or avoid each other. People who would stop attending or even move to another congregation instead of facing those troubling exchanges and disagreements. But if we are the family of God, then we need to be able to work through some of these issues whatever they may be. And they might be confrontational, and we might have to do a good bit of listening, but that's what family does. Family works through things. Based on what we have read in the letters of John, it's a pretty clear line that he draws, and someone being an arrogant jerk is very different than someone teaching a false version of Jesus. In other words, there are some folks we can avoid. But family members are not in that category, even if they are hard to deal with. So just think about the very different guys Jesus had in his crew that were able to come together in unity for his sake, right? People on opposite ends of all kinds of spectrums. Now John did give a warning here, though, after briefly mentioning diatrophies, He said, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate evil. Good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Which means it's possible he thought of Diotrephes as not having seen God. As if maybe he was part of the group, he'd been brought in somehow. Maybe he was a relative of somebody or a friend, and he'd become part, but he really hadn't given his life over to Jesus yet. And this is something I think we misunderstand as well. The whole life of faith is a journey. Different people may be at different places along that journey, or possibly right at the beginning. It's definitely not like the first time we all showed up to a church service, we had it all figured out and under control, right? I didn't. It's not as if we're perfect now. I'm certainly not. That means that any congregation of believers may well have people at various stages of faith and maturity. And Diotrephes was obviously immature at best. And John didn't want Gaius or anyone else imitating him or following in his footsteps. But to counterbalance this and to show the kind of person worth imitating, John mentioned a man named Demetrius. A man who received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. That's the kind of people we should be. The kind who are known to walk in the light, love, and life of Jesus. The kind who are continually giving their lives over to the Holy Spirit so that they might be made more like Jesus. A little bit every day, and some days more than others people who follow in the way of Jesus and those who have followed in his way before us. John wanted to encourage such behavior in Gaius and the other believers. And it's no stretch at all to say he would want to encourage it in us as well. As we come to the conclusion of this final letter, John again wrote that he had more to say, but he would save it for when he was there in person. And then he offered peace and a final greeting. And what seems clear from this is that John felt closely connected to Gaius and these other believers. As was his practice, it seemed as if he circled back around to the relational connection he had with them and wanted them to have it with each other. By passing greetings from one group of believers to another, John revealed that believers both then and now are relationally connected to a much larger thing than we might imagine, that we are in truth linked with family members all around the world, which is quite encouraging if we stop to think about it because that means we have brothers and sisters literally all over the place. Our family is huge and spread out we can be sure that at any given moment, our prayers and our worship and our devotion are a part of a larger, more vast symphony of faith than we can fully grasp. That we have a place in this story of God's kingdom. That our lives join together with the lives of others both now and throughout history to produce a harmony of light and love and life all over the world so as we enjoy Thanksgiving this week and then move into the season of Advent this next week, as our hearts turn to shadows and light, may we live in our present chaos with hope and peace and love and joy. May we walk in the light and exemplify the things that John was speaking about just as Jesus is in the light. He's the one John was looking at. And may we do it in the most personal way possible. We pray.